Welcome to the Change Alchemist podcast. This is your host Shobhana Vishwanathan and today's guest is Yvonne Vasanar. Yvonne is the CEO of Puppet, a trusted enterprise provider of pervasive automation across traditional and cloud native environments. She has more than 25 years of experience scaling companies globally and driving enterprise innovation with technology. Prior to Puppet, Yvonne served as CEO of Airware, CIO at New Relic, and held multiple leadership roles at VMware and Accenture. She currently serves on the board and audit committee for both Forrester and Harvey Mudd College, along with being an advisor to SNCC and a Sapphire Ventures Fellow. Previously, Yvonne served as a board director for Airware, MuleSoft, Pitium, and the Athena Alliance. She holds a BA in economics with a specialization in computing from UCLA and an MBA in strategy and operations from the university's Anderson School of Business. Her market impact earned her recognition as a woman of influence in Silicon Valley, the board list top 20, SF Business Times Public Company CIO award winner, and as a WSJ woman of note. In this podcast, she talks about her unique career journey digital innovation in the post-pandemic world, gender diversity in tech, and much, much more. Welcome to the show, Yvonne. I'm really looking forward to our discussion today. When we talked last week, we talked about three main areas to cover. Your rise to a CEO and board member, the impact of digital innovation in business and our communities, And number three, talk about gender diversity in tech. Finally, we can wrap up with some insights um, from you for our audience. So let's get started. I'd love to hear about your rise to CEO and board member. Tell us a little bit about your journey and how you got here. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Shavana, first and foremost, for, for having me on the, the show It's a great opportunity, I think, to share ideas and perspectives around how things are evolving and changing. It's interesting when you ask about how I got to where I am. And I think in many regards, important because as I've taken on bigger and bigger jobs, what I find is most people assume, like I always knew this is where I was going. Mm-hmm. And I, I think for some folks who are younger in their careers in particular, it can be a bit discouraging because they're not quite sure what they want to do or how they're going to get there. And I'm a great case example of I never aspired to be a CEO. <laughs> I started after college as a software engineer at Accenture. I had a very, very windy path um, back to business school, to strategy consulting, to go to market, to product. And oftentimes people would be confused about career choices I made to take on different roles. And what always kind of propelled me forward was a deep intellectual curiosity. I love to learn, a deep passion around purpose. I wanted what I did to make a difference. And finding people who really inspired me and, and following them and, and taking their advice and appreciating their investments. And so for me, I've, in retrospect, had a really interesting blended career of 17 years in consulting, both doing IT work, building systems, as well as most of it in strategy. I've been an operator 
both on the go-to-market side, but also on the product side, and at one point, a CIO. Mm-hmm. And I think what really propelled me into the CEO role was the board work I was doing. So I got inspired probably about seven, eight years ago to pursue board work, both for private companies, but ultimately for public companies as well. And that helped me broaden my perspective in terms of how to really contribute and make a difference at that next level of leadership. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're a second time CEO now. You sit on a couple of public boards. Clearly, you had a lot of options before you took this job as a CEO at Puppet. Tell me a little bit about your choice of Puppet and why Puppet and why now? The, it's interesting when you're looking at making a career change. And I think for many people, it's kind of easy to sit where you are. And so as I thought about what my next career move was going to be, I looked at the same three things that I often advise others who ask me about what they're thinking about doing. The the, the first is, is it an area you're interested in? Does it make a difference? Does it align with your purpose or your calling of where you want to have impact? The second is, do the right raw ingredients exist for success? And the third is, can you personally contribute to driving that success? And so for me, while I did have many different opportunities, when I looked at Puppet, and for those of of you who don't don't know what Puppet does, we're an infrastructure automation company, which basically the easiest way to think about it is those really annoying cell phone updates you get that cause you to have to reboot your cell phone at the most inopportune times. (laughs) Um, Imagine if you had a data center and you had all these servers and you had to manually go around and do all that work. When Luke Kines founded Puppet, it was to solve that problem, was to say rather than manually go around and ensure infrastructure is working the way it should with the right patches and software on it, let's have software do that. And to me, the reason why this space is important is as we digitize everything in the world around us, you want to make sure that that infrastructure, that that phone or that computer or whatever it is that's running your life um, is reliable that it's going to handle the increased demands on it. Like we put on Zoom and other places today. It's not going to shut down in the middle of your your son or daughter's class or your important work call. That it's going to be secure. You're not going to have bad actors coming in and, and creating problems. So when I looked at the space was deeply intriguing to me. It's a space I know. It's one that I think is increasingly important. The second thing is it doesn't have the right raw ingredients for success. And to me, for for people who've used Puppet, it started off as an open source project and grown into a company. But people who have interacted with the technology, either open source or commercial, um, they understand how powerful it is and how it just works. And the culture of the company is amazing. It's um, very community focused. People care about the communities that they work in and they live in. They care about each other. They care a lot about diversity and inclusion. So it was a good match for me in terms of the type of things that we were building, but also how we were building them. And then the final thing is, was there something I could contribute? And I felt given my background of both consulting, helping companies scale the go-to-market and build out broader portfolios, as well as my operating experience could really help Puppet 
kind of build out that next generation. So as we looked more at cloud native and containers and Kubernetes, how could we shift and evolve the portfolio to really support that increasingly multi-cloud environment? So to me, I always say I couldn't have designed a job more perfect and it's been a blast. That's really good to hear, especially for people starting out in their careers. It's good to hear that there is such a thing as a perfect job. Which brings me to an important question. You've worked as a CIO, you're now a CEO and a board member of public companies. You see the impact of digital innovation in business, but also in our communities today. Yvonne, as CEO of Puppet, you're in conversations probably every day with customers, with technology leaders who are accelerating the digital transformation much more than they thought they would perhaps last year and driving initiatives that further their business and help them get a competitive advantage and maybe even just stay alive. How do you see the impact of technology changes play out both in the short and long term? I, I, so Shavana, you brought up a really important point, which is um, for as much as we talked about digital, digital innovation pre-pandemic, it's definitely clear that the, the transitions that are happening in all industries, be them education, healthcare, retail, transportation, whatever it is, you name it, those digi digital innovations are accelerating. And to me, there's a lot that's written on it right now about what matters and what doesn't and how do you think about it. The, the things that really rise to the surface for me, first and foremost is you have to think about your business differently. And if you're a brand new business startup, you know, it's great. You're born in the digital age, it's phenomenal. But, but most people work for companies or have a small business that's grounded in the more traditional world. And I think we've all experienced the not fun, <laughs> let's just take how we've done our meetings in our physical world and let's convert them all to Zooms. We're all realizing that that's not a productive way to digitally engage in running a business. And the same thing with cell phones. Like you don't use your cell phone, for those of you who can remember, the same way that you use the phone that used to be plugged into your wall or heaven forbid, a payphone that you put a coin into. And so the first thing I'd say is you really need to bring in you know, different perspectives and ideas and do the industry analysis to truly understand what does digital innovation mean in your world? And so being thoughtful around not just digitizing how you do your current work today, but how do you really do it geared towards the advantages that technology brings? The second thing that I'd say is we often get focused on the shiny new toy. So we get focused on the application. You know, I'm going to set up an e-commerce channel or I'm going to have, you know, digital games or, you know, whatever it is. I'm going to do digital expenses. Um, but what we have to realize is what sits on top of that and what sits underneath it. Mm. And what I mean by that is what sits on top of that is the people process. And so a new application is only as good as the processes and the people who engage with it, both from the people who are running it, but also the people consuming it. So you need to make sure you're spending enough time really kind of grokking and understanding what it is and do it in an agile way. Don't expect you're gonna get it perfect out of the gate. 
Um, but also think about what it's sitting on top of, which you know is near and dear to my heart because that's infrastructure, whether it's in the cloud, in the data center, in a server under your desk or restaurant table. Like you have to think about as you grow and scale out, how are you gonna do that effectively? How are you gonna do that securely? How are you gonna run that? Who are you gonna partner with? And the third thing I'd call out really is around this evolution. And I think what we often get misled by are these wonderful success stories of somebody who just flipped a switch <laughs> and they were transported, teleported into this amazing new world and everything was great. But for most of us, and certainly for the customers that I service, which is the Fortune 5000, they have tons of investments in the, the traditional ways or the heritage ways of doing things. And most of these changes for large companies are going to be an evolution, an evolution that has been sped up. But if you think about it from a business standpoint, there are people who are still going to go in and bank inside a bank, as well as people who increasingly are banking on their phones. Mm -hmm. There are still IBM mainframes running in those banks, and there are cloud-native applications being built in Azure and AWS. And you have to find ways to bring these things together. And typically, what becomes a downfall for a company is not um, necessarily that they had a bad idea about where they wanted to get, but they didn't necessarily figure out how to transition effectively balancing all these different things at once. And so what I typically try to advise people is be forward thinking, um, but realize that you have technical and process debt, you have traditional customers. And so you're going to have to think about how you transition off of that or help them transition faster so you can bring them along or decide somebody else is going to service them. And you want to be investing in technologies and capabilities and talent, quite frankly, in your, your company that can help you solve today's problems while building the foundation for tomorrow's innovation. An interesting point you bring up, which is it's, it's probably an evolution and not a revolution for most people. You talked about some of the key considerations. Would you say security and compliance are important? What else do you think people should think about as they evolve? Yeah, well, I, I'd say first and foremost, you need to think about how you're going to successfully navigate the business transition. And so, again, I, I look at that both from the inside and outside. So you have to think about not only how do you help your employees work through how their jobs are changing and the different ways that you're going to invest money as you go into your fiscal planning processes and how you're going to switch from CapEx to OpEx spending mm -hmm. and still hit a profitable bottom line or manage your cash if you're a cash-driven business. At the same time, you have to think about how you're managing the outside. How are you managing your customers? How are you being transparent? How are you helping them understand what's agile and being evolved versus what's baked and, and they can put their entire life savings into it? <laughs> um, you have to be really clear with how you're setting expectations with your customers and who are you trying to add to that base and who are sure. you willing to let go? So I think that that piece is important. Absolutely, security and compliance is important. As an ex-CIO, 
I, I think we wildly underestimate the risk in a lot of the applications we use day to day in our personal lives and even in, in the professional world. And sometimes these hit the, 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 the <laughs> blogs and the tweets and all of that when something bad happens. But we need to be careful. I mean, one that, that really hit a chord with me was a ransomware attack that was coordinated in the U.S. across six different hospitals. And it meant that they couldn't move patients. They had to do everything with paper process. And you start to realize these things can impact people's lives, mm -hmm. not just their personal details and so forth. So definitely security and compliance. But the final thing that I would say is it's, it's really around taking on some of those risks in a thoughtful kind of risk mitigated way. And so that's where I always believe like you can invest in solving today's problems while setting the foundation for the future and always kind of making sure that you're not keeping too, too much weight in the, the past or the present, but always be forward leaning into where you're going. And quite frankly, most of the outrageous, crazy ideas are already <laughs> being implemented somewhere. And so it's learning from those early edge adopters that really figuring out how to fine tune it for mass scale. And yeah, as an operator and a board member, you probably see a lot of companies experimenting with new models now, and they're already here to stay. You brought up a, an interesting point a little earlier on. You talked about customer experience, but also employee experience. Mm -hmm. And I want to hear your thoughts as a leader on perhaps how uh, people's lives can be made better with AI and automation, just in light of some studies like the Gallup study is an interesting one. They started tracking employee engagement in 2000, and this year engagement has fluctuated more than ever. And there are 51% of workers are not engaged today. And that's an interesting stat. And when you and I talked, you had mentioned that this is appalling and we need to change this. Love to hear your prescription to, to kind of change this number. Yeah, um, I am always shocked. I, I, I feel blessed. I pretty much almost every day of my life I've gotten out of bed, excited to go to school or work, which I guess makes me a little unique. But it's part of why I go back to even like, how did I pick Puppet? I think the more people have the flexibility and opportunities to find work that intrigues them, that they can really, that they understand the purpose of it's important. Now, not everybody has that luxury. And sometimes you have to focus on how do you put food on the table. And to me, even in those situations, it's finding ways that you can understand and find that purpose and then drive to that advancement. The, the benefit that I think AI and technology can bring um, from a work perspective, it's a little of a double-edged sword, but I think we can get the balance. If I look at Puppet, you know, Puppet initially started to eliminate soul-crushing work. And if you think about it, going server by server by server, when you have hundreds of thousands of servers and you're doing the same repetitive work time and time again, that is not wildly fulfilling. Now it's important, it has purpose, but it's not wildly fulfilling. If you think about, you know, expense reporting, right? Anybody who's ever had to fill out an expense report, like I remember having to manually attach receipts and if you can remember how to Xerox copy, <laughs> sign handwritten forms where you had to use like something called a calculator, add things up. I mean, my gosh, how beautiful that not only can I use my phone to scan in a receipt and it's automatically all processed, 
but even better when it pulls it from the payment mechanism, discerns what it is, put it in the right expense category, and somebody can fix it if it's wrong. So there's lots of interesting ways that we've tried to eliminate these repetitive hard parts of you know, doing things to get to a better spot. The challenge is that one, that, that doesn't, these technologies don't always work perfectly out of the gate. And so one thing we have to recognize to steal from what you said earlier, it's not a flip the switch. And so we have to look at, for example, in a self-driving car, you know, at what point do you really let it drive itself? <laughs> so you have to kind of say like, how good is it? You know, how risky is it if it gets it wrong? And where am I gonna take those risks or bets? And so one is we have to think about AI and technology in terms of when is it ready and what is it ready for? Because we instinctively trust ourselves more than we trust machines. And the classic example always given is, if you have two bad choices, when you're driving a car and do you, you know, definitively kill one person or do you potentially kill many, you know, it's just, a, it's a decision you make. Whereas a computer might make a different decision and it's hard for us to rationalize computers killing anybody, even if the human result wouldn't be any better. And so we, we really need to be thoughtful on where we deploy these technologies and how do we get a level of comfort that it's that it is working well however working well is defined the second thing we have to appreciate is this type of automation um, in ai is not going to be evenly evenly distributed in wonderful ways so it's fine for me to give an example of wow you know if you're a sysadmin or an infrastructure operator i'm going to automate away all this soul crushing work for you so you can go do cool container-based cloud <laughs> okay that's cool <laughs> but if we think about it more realistically think about the long-haul truck drivers one of the first types of transformation of transportation that it will be taken over from a self-driving mechanism will most likely be long-haul trucking. There's already several routes that are done um, as we speak in this form. And I remember um, doing a study and you know, getting a chance to hear some focus groups talk about what they thought self-driving would mean for them as long-haul truck drivers. And there was this one gentleman who's like, oh, this will be great. I can sleep in the back of my truck and, you know, just have to be there to unload the stuff. <laughs> and you start thinking like, no, no, you're not going to be in the truck. Like you're out of a job. And so what we have to be thinking about, I believe, from a societal standpoint is not only how do we retool people who are in environments where their jobs are just shifting, but how do we think about retooling entire segments of the workforce who their work, their livelihood may be so impacted that it goes away? And again, it's not going to be a flip the switch, but I think we have a tendency as a society to turn a little bit of a blind eye to the potential negative implications to, to communities um, that really we as, as, as business leaders um, and as members of our communities and as government officials need to be thinking long and hard around gig economies, the automation of work, um, and how do we productively navigate that, not just as one person or as a company, but as a collective society. What would an ideal future of work um, look like for you as we go through this evolution? 
Yeah. When I think about technology, um, you know, the we're already seeing it when we look back over history in terms of, you know, you don't have to, you know, be out in the fields all the time, you know, doing manual labor, you know, we created machinery, we, we built out biotech to, you know, to help fertilize and, and, and you know, we've done, you know, genetics to, to build healthier crops, we've done all these different things. And so, as you look at it, work has changed significantly over the last, you know, several hundred years. The challenge we have right now is work is changing really, really rapidly. So my hope is that we take this opportunity to really understand what is today's technology really good at. It's really good at, you know, computational analysis. It's really good at fact finding. It's really good at, um, you know, discerning information from vast amount of data that we could not independently do. But what is it not good at yet? It's not good at empathy. It's not good at physical connection. It's not good at, you know, driving, um, uh, you know, personal connections. It's not good at some physical forms of engagement. Um, it's not good at the arts yet in terms of how we interpret it. And so I think we have an opportunity to see how can we leverage technology to solve for those hard um, you know, things that it's good at. And how do we then double down on things like teaching and healthcare and, you know, those elements that aren't as, um, as easily replaced and quite frankly, desperately needed. And, and in many regards, not necessarily as well valued in society as perhaps they should be. On a more personal level, um, and particularly in certain industry segments like financial services or banking or retail, in some of those spaces, I think there's a great opportunity for us to leverage technology to create more work-life integration and balance, um, to support more diversity and inclusion, to spread the workload of raising a family or taking care of one's parents um, you know, we're living through it in the pandemic now, like where we have more, I don't think we're going to be all remote forever, um, but you'll see more remote hybrid. And I think that gives us more freedom and flexibility to live in different places, engage in different ways, and hopefully find better balance within our households and within our communities. Changing gears, Yvonne, I've always been a, a huge fan of your work and just your leadership style. As a woman leader and CEO, I'm sure a lot of women are looking um, to you um, for advice on how to chart their paths. If you were to give yourself advice to your 20-year-old self, for example, what would that be? All right. Well, first, I got to go way back in time. <laughs> <laughs> but if I did that, it, it's interesting. I, I've reflected on what advice would I give to myself. And, and it's interesting. It's not really gender related. I'd say anybody who's young in their career, the thing I, I would have done more of knowing what I know now is networking. Um, I was an inherently shy mm -hmm. kid who was good in school. So I wasn't shy in class, but I wasn't a, a big networker. And I always thought um, if I worked hard and did good work, um, that that would be great <laughs> and everything else would solve for itself. And what I found as I progressed in my career is that works up into a certain point. 
Um, but in the big scheme of things, at the level of impact that I want to have in the communities that I work in, it wasn't going to be enough. And I remember I got passed over for a promotion that I was confident I had more than earned. I was very upset. And one of my female peers um, listened to my, my sob story and gave me the blessing on my 20-step plan to get that promotion the next time around. One of my good male friends looked at me and said, Yvonne, you know what? You're one of the smartest people I know, but don't come crying on my shoulder. He goes, I bet you eat lunch at your desk. And sure enough, I did. I had three kids, still have three kids. And, and I did, like I just worked and I took care of my family and that's all I did. And his point was, you have no leverage. Like you're in this one value chain and you have no leverage and you have no ability to tap into other opportunities or to balance that, those, those PowerPoints. And it was interesting. It started me on um, a really fun and exciting and rewarding path of just taking time to network and realizing that networking is part of my job. Mm -hmm. It's not an after hours activity. It's not a 7 a.m. book club. Like it's, it's during the day. It's, you know, part of what I do. And as a result, I, I can hire more quickly. I can hire better talent. I have access to better information. I can strike partnerships more quickly. Like there's so many valuable outcomes of it. They don't always happen day one. Sometimes they happen years later, but um, that is the A number one thing I do. And I would say probably women um, have a harder time doing it. I think in large part when they get to their mid-career, mostly because there's so many demands on their time, but just realize it's part of your job. And, and I think also a lot of women are so focused on their job. They think of this as a, a tax that they have to pay as opposed to um, actually adding value. So that's, that's really good advice. Um, in September, I was looking at some stats. In September, an eye-popping 865,000 women left the U.S. workforce for reasons that you mentioned, to take care of family, to, to kind of be the caregiver. This is four times as much as men. And this actually, this stat really appalled me. The coronavirus is wreaking havoc in households and women are bearing the brunt of it, and especially mothers. What are some changes you'd like to see as a leader, maybe even some policy changes that, that you'd like to see happen? Yeah, it's, it is devastating seeing how many women are falling out of the workforce. Not surprising, but, but definitely devastating. And I think it's important to segment who is being impacted because there is a segment of women who are leaving the workforce in part because they work in industries where they're being more heavily impacted by the pandemic. And I think we really need to think about from the industry perspective, whether it's small, medium business, where you tend to have a lot of female owners, whether it's some of the hospitality industries where you tend to have heavier tilt towards um, female workers. We have to think about how do we help those industries either transition or get healthy? That's part of this solve. In other industries like the ones I work in tech, which we've actually in some regards benefited from the pandemic, financial services has done really well. There's other industries. I think we need to be really creative and thoughtful around how we support people, quote unquote, trying to do it all. And so I think there are some policies that we need to think about in terms of how we enable people to have more flexible work styles. 
how we think about, particularly in larger corporations, how you can help support with childcare. You know, one of the, the big challenges in the pandemic is historically how women have quote unquote done it all is they've relied on their family, be it by blood or just by cultivation. <laughs> um, but, it, but it takes a village. And, you know, during the pandemic, you can't actually access that village, which is what's caused a lot of people to leave. But as we go back, we need to think about how are we ensuring that people can get access to the child care that they need so that they can work, um, like I said, flexible work options. Um, however, that's kind of like once we're back. I think the, the, the third thing we need to think about beyond the industries and how we balance it once we're back is how do we help women re-enter? And historically, a lot of the research has shown, and I've seen it myself, that when women have opted to take time off to care for a family member, they're oftentimes penalized when they come back to work. Um, they're penalized because they may need to come back part time, and that historically has been frowned upon, or they're penalized because they're not seen as relevant. You know, they don't have this, you know, inflated salary that they can use to get a more inflated salary. And so I think we really need to look at both how we potentially unintentionally discriminate against people who have more flexible work styles or need to come back part time, particularly with technology. There's so many more options. And the second is we really need to ensure we have the right policies and processes in place to fairly re-engage folks when they're ready to come back and to really support them with that, that kind of onboarding back into the workforce so that, so that they can excel and reach their true potential. That's great. And that's very uplifting and positive. Um, and I, I've always been struck by how female world leaders and CEOs like yourself have actually gone through the pandemic and been very effective. And in fact, I read your interview recently on that topic. So is there a leadership style that works for you? And that's actually worked during conflict situations like we're facing now. Leadership styles um, vary a lot. Um, I've had the opportunity to experience a lot of different leadership styles, study them, evolve my own. And what I would say is that um, going beyond just kind of male and female, but abstracting to more masculine leadership styles versus feminine leadership styles, because I know many men who've, who've done that and women who've, who've done the inverse. Um, I do believe we're moving from a societal standpoint to a place, a time and place where more feminine leadership characteristics can really help us advance the most as a society and find the most fulfillment personally and for our teams. And, and I say that in the context of the ability to have empathy, the ability to be vulnerable, the ability to think about connectivity and connectedness are all so heightened right now in the pandemic, but they're always important. And some of the examples I'll give you know, I, just as a female leader in positions of power, I mean, I remember one time I had uh, one of my direct reports come to me and, and, and I could tell they were exhausted. And, and, and they were starting to dive into some presentation. And I just paused and I said, are you okay? And they looked at me and you could see they thought about it for a second and they said, I'm so tired. My, you know, one and a half year old son had an ear infection last night. 
and I had to go to the emergency room and I didn't get a lot of sleep. And then he stopped and he goes, I'm realizing if you weren't you, I wouldn't, wouldn't be telling you this. Okay. And, and the interesting thing is, is that he knew I had three kids. He knew I knew exactly how it felt. And I turned and I looked at him. I said, you know what? Go home. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll have a much more productive conversation about this tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And, and I think just those small things of making it permissible that we can all be human, whether we're female or male, and we can make it okay that men can help out with family issues, with the good and the challenges of that. It's really how we open the door for other, other people to, to play in at different phases and how we collectively get better. So I would say if you talk to people who work with me, I, I do tend to be very transparent. I tend to be very vulnerable. Um, I have three kids. I don't have all the answers, um, but I, I care deeply around what we do, how we do it. And I always tell folks, my job isn't to have the right answer. My job is to create the environment where everybody can do their best work and collectively will develop the right answer. If you were to bottle your superpower, what would you name it? (laughs) (laughs) My kids would say I have eyes in the back of my head. Um, My partner, Greg, would say that I live a few seconds ahead of him Mm -hmm. because I always know what he's going to say or what he's looking for. Um, he also thinks I have x-ray vision because I can see stuff through. <laughs> I, I, I was just telling him, just move something in the refrigerator. You'll be amazed at what you find. Um, but for me, I, I think from a professional standpoint, it's interesting. I, um, I, I think this is another tip that people talk more about now, but I, I'm dyslexic. Um, and I've always had a hard time doing numbers in my head or, or reading and and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm of an age where they didn't really diagnose that in school and you learn coping mechanisms. But I would say what, what I'm incredibly good at, and I think it's kind of the inverse of what I struggle with, is being able to absorb vast amounts of information and see the, the connection points and see the inferences and understand trade-offs incredibly quickly. And so I think it's that kind of macro view of the universe and being able to connect those dots that is probably my superpower. Though x-ray vision is pretty cool. I think that's very cool. That's a better one. (laughs) What are some books that have shaped your thinking? It could be business or fiction. Take your pick. I actually do a lot more of, particularly now, podcasts and and short article reading. in part, I think, because I'm dyslexic and I have a hard time reading. Um, but what I would say is um, early on, it was uh, Stephen Covey's um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, just kind of being able, I still use it today, you know, urgent, important, <laughs> that whole matrix, um, as well as The Goal, um, which was a book on kind of operational process, really helping you think about both bottlenecks and and operational efficiency, but it also taught me the power of telling stories that, you know, you can teach theory, but, but, but human beings remember stories. So I'd say if I look back, it's that more recently, um, conscious capitalism, I'm a big believer in, in that whole movement and that capitalism is good, but we need to think about it in the the more holistic sense. Um, And I'd also um, call it the book, um, you know, how to be an anti-racist, I think there's a, a real need for all of us to increase our understanding um, and education around the systemic bias and racism that exists that we're all part of. 
um, and how we can play a role in, in making that different. And I found that to be a very eye-opening and, and quite frankly, inspirational book to read. What's your favorite quote? My favorite quote is very simple. It is, you know, be the change you want to see in the world. And, um, you know, most people say Mahatma Gandhi said that. Some people debate that. But I, I love it because of two things. One, um, I can't blame other people. <laughs> I can't say, Shut up, you go fix it. Like, <laughs> I need to be that change. And so on one, I think we have way too much finger pointing in the world. And if we could all just understand that, that we have a role to play in it, I think that's important. But the flip side of that coin um, is what I really like. It empowers us. Mm -hmm. It empowers us to be the change we want to see. It gives us something that we can do. And I'm a big believer. All the great change in the world starts with, with one. And one becomes two, becomes many. And, and I love that. And it fits really well into the theme of my podcast, which is really about change. So I love that. If you were to leave listeners with three pieces of advice, three takeaways, what would they be? Three takeaways. One thing I think is really important, particularly for folks younger in their careers, is make sure you're taking the time to take care of yourself, to slow down enough to see the forest through the trees. When I reflect back on my life, I ran so hard for the first several decades, <laughs> not networking, just working really hard. Like I, I missed, I'm sure, some great opportunities because I was just too in the details. So the first is take the time to slow down, see the forest through the trees. The, the second would be surround yourself with a diverse set of perspectives. When I think back to how did I start networking, it's because I had different people in my network to ask who gave me different pieces of advice and, and helped me think differently. And you need people who are going to push you. You need people who are going to console you. You need lots of different types of personalities and perspectives. So make sure that your network and particularly those that you hold close are diverse in all types of aspects. The final one probably is about risk-taking. We didn't talk a lot about it here, but part of the advice I got as I navigated through my career has been Yvonne, it's not as risky as you think. Mm -hmm. And a classic example is when I wanted to get on some smaller company boards and a dear friend told me that, that I'd have to, be, well, he said I was one of the smartest people he knows. I have that theme in my life. I'm one of the smartest people, but I'd never put you on one of my boards. Oh, really? And it's because oh. I didn't have the right experience. Mm -hmm. But I had all these reasons why leaving VMware would be a bad idea. And he's like, why do you think that's so risky? He's like, they'll always take you back. You can always get a big company job, get a small company job. And so I would say just take, really examine the risks that you think you're about to embark on or that you have the potential to do and see if they're really as risky as you think. They're probably not. And usually when you take those risks, it's when you get the greatest learnings and the most fulfillment. Oh, it's been wonderful uh, talking with you, Yvonne. Thank you so much. And I hope to do this podcast after the pandemic with you to see what takeaways we have. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining the show. If you enjoyed the show, 
Subscribe on iTunes or any platform of your choice. Tell your friends. And I'll see you next week. Thank you.